Hi, my name is Ellis Tucci. This week, I want to talk to you about something a little different. The future. Will we ever reach a time in the duration of human civilization where our social and economic evolution will plateau? Where we will have already discovered the best ways of doing something? Where our global system is dominated by such an incredibly powerful idea that for so long as there are humans, it remains. What I'm talking about is a philosophical and political theory called the end of history. Essentially, the idea that at some point in the future we will decide that the philosophies which govern our world need not be changed. What does a philosophy need to bring about this end? Is it even possible? And if it is, are we there right now? You're listening to Hidden History, and this is episode 88, Life at the End of History. You can find Hidden History on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and www.hiddenhistory.show. If you like this episode, then subscribe, share it with your friends, or follow the link in the description. So, the first really prominent user of the idea, the end of history, was the philosopher Hegel, who used to describe the end result of his Hegelian dialectic, or the idea that history evolves in a way that gives it a distinct beginning, middle, and end. This dialectical view of history was then adopted by, and incorporated into the works of, Karl Marx, who was one of the many philosophers who was captivated by Hegel's work. In both Capital and the Communist Manifesto, Marx lays out how the end of history will be brought about by the achievement of communism. Marx was writing in the mid to late 1800s. He died in 1883 with a significant amount of work left unfinished. And there are a great many things that Marx wrote about that have remained prescient in popular ideas into the current day. The end of history is one of those, and although he didn't create it, the later wide circulation of his writings helped popularize it further. After World War I, Woodrow Wilson thought that the end of history, although he didn't use that terminology, would be brought about by the continuation of his liberal internationalist order, characterized by things like the League of Nations. Wilson, of course, was incorrect. The League of Nations failed its first significant challenge by choosing to appease Hitler in order to defend individual national interests, and the post-war Wilsonian order came tumbling down at the onset of World War II. The end of history once again rose to prominence towards the end of the Cold War. Now, personally, in regard to the Cold War, I think that both sides lost. But in the end, the USSR was dismantled, and liberal capitalism was left as the last one standing. The political upheavals of 1989 inspired the political scientist Francis Fukuyama to write an essay called The End of History, followed by a book in 1992 called The End of History and the Last Man. Here's an explanatory excerpt from the opening of the original essay. 
Check out the link in the description if you'd like to read the entire thing. What we may be witnessing is not just the end of the Cold War, or the passing of a particular period of post-war history, but the end of history as such. That is, the end point of mankind's ideological evolution and the universalization of Western liberal democracy as the final form of human government. This is not to say that there will no longer be events to fill the pages of foreign affairs' yearly summaries of international relations, for the victory of liberalism has occurred primarily in the realm of ideas or consciousness, and as yet incomplete in the real or material world. He goes on to write, The state that emerges at the end of history is liberal insofar as it recognizes and protects through a system of law man's universal right to freedom, and democratic insofar as it exists only with the consent of the governed. This so-called universal homogenous state found real-life embodiment in the countries of post-war Western Europe precisely those flabby, preposterous, self-satisfied, inward-looking, weak-willed states whose grandest project was nothing more heroic than the creation of the common market. But this was only to be expected, for human history and the conflict that characterized it was based on the existence of contradictions. Primitive man's quest for mutual recognition, the dialectic of the master and slave, the transformation and mastery of nature, the struggle for universal recognition of rights, and the dichotomy between proletarian and capitalist. But in the universal homogenous state, all prior contradictions are resolved, and all human needs are satisfied. There is no struggle or conflict over large issues, and consequently, no need for generals or statesmen. What remains is primarily economic activity. I think that Francis Fukuyama is awfully presumptive and awfully small in his thinking. He argues that liberalism has prevailed because it has generated the highest monetary standard of living and the broadest collection of human rights. I said that he thinks small, not because I believe he's an unintelligent person, but because he doesn't seem to consider the global policy implications when touting the credentials of liberalism. The only reason that the liberal order has been able to generate significant amounts of wealth in countries like America, France, Germany, and Great Britain is because it was engineered to do so at the expense of other countries and other people. In the colonial period, Britain became wealthy at the expense of India and Central Africa. Portugal became wealthy at the expense of Brazil. Belgium became wealthy at the expense of the Congo. The United States became wealthy at the expense of Native Americans. In the liberal era, many of these exploitative relationships retain all the same qualities, but exist under kinder names. One of the things that liberalism has excelled at is creating stratification, creating a world of haves and have-nots, enriching the established practitioners of liberalism at the expense of poor nations. 
The post-war liberal order has successfully created an underclass of nations who are exploited by the powerful for their own enrichment. The only reason that you can buy a t-shirt for ten bucks is because a child in a sweatshop in Bangladesh was paid two dollars a day to make it for you. It's impossible for these exploited nations to join the ranks of the rich and powerful, not only because they have been robbed of their resources, but because liberal capitalism requires cheap labor in order to function. True equality is impossible because someone always has to be at the bottom of the pyramid. And any social order that has built-in necessary inequality is by nature unstable. The human spirit will always seek to move beyond the limitations placed upon it by an oppressor. And so any society that is naturally unequal creates an incredible pressure for change, and, if unaddressed, invites revolt. It takes, in my opinion, a great amount of hubris to state only after 30 years of global dominance that we have found the best possible way of organizing society. History is happening at a much faster rate now than it was in the past. We can communicate instantly, more efficiently share ideas, more effectively advocate for change. In theory, that should make our society more adaptable and faster to evolve. But it doesn't really feel like that, does it? And that's because a characteristic of liberal capitalism is that it's very resistant even to incremental change. That feature alone means that liberalism cannot bring about the end of history. What it does mean is that at some point, liberal capitalism will break because it has refused to bend. But, like I said, history is moving faster. But from 1045 to 221 BC, a single family, the Zhou Dynasty, ruled all of China. In their 500th year of rule, I bet they were thinking to themselves, you know, I think we've got a handle on this one forever. And I understand where that feeling might come from if your family ended up ruling for almost a thousand years. But liberal capitalism is laying claim to the throne. It's only been the world's great power for 30 years, since the fall of the Soviet Union in 1991, and already it's beginning to show signs that the center cannot hold. If left to continue unchecked and unchanged, it's set to cause a biblical-level climate disaster in maximum the next 10 years. The only way that liberalism begets the end of history is if it begets the end of the world. For any ideology to successfully bring about the conditions that cause the end of history, no matter its other qualities, it has to have one specific characteristic. It has to be sustainable. No system of beliefs can be fixed for the long term if it ignores the realities of the long term. This is a significant reason why liberal capitalism cannot be the end form of human government. The endless growth demanded by capitalism means that it can never be a sustainable ideology because that growth demands that more people constantly consume more things. Liberalism is inherently bad at producing long-term sustainable policy because it is an ideology that is fixated on short-term gains. 
Our current governing philosophy rejects the reforms that would guarantee its long life because those changes would temporarily lower quarterly earnings. If you'd like to learn more about that, then I'd suggest you listen to episode 85, where I talk about the fact that the oil industry knew they were causing climate change in the 1960s, and instead of gradually making the transition to a sustainable business model, for decades they funded climate deniers to discredit their own scientists. In this way, liberal capitalism is self-destructive. It's like the Ouroboros, the snake eating its own tail. It will refuse to change its behavior even when the results of that behavior create conditions where it cannot survive. If humanity is destined to exist 5,000 years from now, then it is fundamentally impossible that we will live under the current form of liberal government because that current form of government is set to make the world uninhabitable within the century. The end of history also represents the achievement of a consensus. If the end of history means that our governing philosophy will never change again, then that would mean that nobody is interested in organizing or accumulating power in order to change it for their own benefit. In this way, the end of history demands both total equality and the death of self-interest, two things fundamentally at odds with the system of capitalism. So, I've argued as to why I think Fukuyama is wrong in his assertion that neoliberalism will bring about the end of history, but that gives us another question. Is it possible to do at all? I would argue that no, it's not. No single ideology can bring about the end of history, and that's because any ideology must fundamentally change in order to adapt to the problems of its time. Let's think about calculus for a second. Now, all calculus is is finding a way to accurately measure the area underneath a curve. Now, how you can estimate your answer is by turning the area underneath that curve into, say, five or ten vertical rectangles and adding up their combined area. Now, if you want to make your estimate more accurate, maybe you can use 20 or 30. That's something called the method of exhaustion. And if you do it correctly, you can get extraordinarily close to the true area. But you'll never arrive because you can always add one more rectangle. Of course, I was not very good at calculus in school. But if you were, then you know that in order to get the exact area underneath that curve, you need to calculate a limit which takes that line and calculates the area using an infinite amount of infinitely thin rectangles. What a limit gives you is the perfectly accurate number. It's the ultimate endpoint of your calculation, and once you get it, you cannot calculate it more precisely. But the only way that you can get to your true endpoint, the point at which the number cannot change anymore, is through an infinite amount of iterations. This same logic is applicable to the end of history. The drive for societal change, and therefore ideological change, would only stop if we had reached utopia. 
that perfect society, one that has left behind war, poverty, sickness, inequality, and suffering, it's not something that we can achieve through the method of exhaustion. We can, of course, get very close, but the fact that we will always be able to iterate further means that we will never be able to achieve the precision demanded by perfection. If we're talking about the perfect society, then we need to make note of the fact that when societies collapse, when ideologies fail, they don't fall down like a house of cards or get immediately reduced to ash. Societies are amorphous, malleable things because they're made up of individuals who can adapt to different ideological conditions. Like clay in the potter's hands, an ailing society can stretch and morph into something new and entirely unrecognizable. The sum of hundreds of tiny incremental changes will eventually result in a societal organization that is identifiably different from its original form. Effectively, it's like the ship of Theseus, but with ideas. This concept of infinite iteration, of infinite improvement, also speaks very deeply to the construct of knowledge. There are things we know we know, there are things we know we don't know, and there are things we don't know we don't know. When we solve one problem, we identify new ones that emerge from the unknown unknown. If it's the prerogative of society that we should continually solve the problems we face, and we are to accept the notion that it's impossible to know everything in the universe, then as we move towards the perfect civilization, though the severity of our social issues will decrease, their abundance will increase at the same rate. As we approach our infinite iteration, so will we approach our infinite problem. Francis Fuyama thinks that liberal capitalism will bring about the end of history. I strongly disagree, not only because of the features inherent to liberal capitalism, but also because no one can predict the demands of a future society. It is almost impossible to accurately envision the future, because our perception of what will be is directly tied to our perception of what is. Predictions from the future almost always turn out to be wrong because those predictions reflect the hopes and anxieties of the time in which they were made. If you have ever read old science fiction or seen cartoons from the 50s that predicted what life would be like in the year 2000, then you understand exactly what I'm talking about. In the case of what we would now call retrofuturism, these were logical predictions that were made based on the linear continuation of then-current trends. For example, in the span of about 20 years, mankind progressed from making crudely engineered rockets to walking on the surface of the moon. If you thought that that rate of progress would continue in a linear fashion, then it would be perfectly reasonable to think that by the year 2000 we would have become a star-faring civilization. But of course, things didn't go according to plan. Progress is not linear, and there's no way to predict the radical events that will change the trajectory of history. One thing is for certain, though. Things will change, and in ways that we cannot yet conceive. 
For any ideology to maintain a permanent dominance, it must be able to adapt to problems that were not accounted for and adopt new features to answer new questions. As we change and grow, as expectations and standards change with each generation, I find it incredibly difficult to believe that we won't look back and laugh at the incredibly 90s idea that the liberalism of George H.W. Bush and Bill Clinton was the pinnacle of human ideology. And so it's somewhat befitting that in 2014, after 25 years, Francis Fukuyama announced that the end of history was still coming down the pipe. Let me know what you think our destiny is, and if you enjoyed this episode, then i really appreciate it if you subscribed and shared it with your friends. Thanks for listening. This is Ellis Tucci at Hidden History, signing off.